Let me pray and then we can uh, begin our study again this afternoon. Thank you as always, Lord God, for this word. Thank you for uh, the ways it challenges us. Um, help us to read all the more carefully and see if we can discern more fully just what's going on in these different texts. Um, as always, we thank you for uh, all four of these gospels and for the picture they give us of Jesus. Thank you for um, the richness that comes with the four of them alongside each other. As always, I also um, just pray against my own limitations and weaknesses uh, and ask that you would bless these friends according to your grace and goodness and the truth of your word. Um, we thank you and we look to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we looked at Mark's gospel, the first six chapters, and um, at the end, I added the gospel of Matthew, and it gave us some questions. Uh, you may recall this was the handout that we were working with, and I tried to line up uh, the events on the right column out of Matthew with the events on the left column out of Mark, and we saw that they are in significantly different ordering. And it makes you wonder what's going on because I think if you were to just take the Gospel of Matthew by itself and start reading through those chapters, you would think he was just giving you the story straight. And if you had picked up Mark and read it, you would think the same thing. So when you put the two Gospels alongside each other, it does create a, a challenge as to what's going on here. The simplest answer, of course, is that somebody's just confused and messed it all up. Um, but that's where I would encourage you to stay with the text a little bit and keep reading more carefully rather than just closing it and walking away. And that is one of the impacts of this class is to say, okay, when we run into something like this, let's try to solve the problem by reading more carefully rather than just closing the book and walking away and dismissing it. I suggested that you would do well, for starters, to read Matthew, the opening chapters, as much as you could, and see if just reading Matthew led to any conclusions at all um, about its structure or themes or what Matthew might be up to. Um, and really, we can do the same thing with Mark, but I do think Matthew even just, if you pick it up and look at it alongside Mark, it does look differently, it does, it does look different. It doesn't just give some events in a different order, it does look different. And I wonder if you've had a chance to look at Matthew then and think about anything that strikes you right off, or maybe not right off, but as you've read about Matthew's structuring or themes or anything like that. Anybody got a thought about Matthew's gospel? I find it very interesting that, I mean, he has like the introduction to Jesus, but it goes into the Sermon on the Mount before really establishing like the acts and miracles that Jesus kind of does. So he goes in more in like his sermon of how we ought to live and how we like look at the Lord and mm -hmm. act in return, and then going into like the acts of Jesus, um, which I find a little bit different than Mark. Yeah. And it is a striking contrast um, to Mark, isn't it? There's nothing like that in Mark's gospel. And so right off the bat, pretty much, after you get introduced to Jesus, you get this substantial, substantial three-chapter um, sermon. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's a fairly distinctive part of Matthew vis-a-vis -vis Mark. 
Anything else to strike you in your reading of Matthew to this point? Any sense for what might be going on as to why Matthew and Mark have these events in different order the way they do? Let's go ahead and look at the handout I gave you then and see what that can tell us. One of the most obvious directions to go in order to try to find out what might be going on here is to look to the other two Gospels, Luke and John, and see if either of them helps us out here. I'll go ahead and just tell you, John's Gospel doesn't so much help us with this particular problem. And as we look at John's Gospel more later in the semester, we'll see its uniqueness. Um, but adding Luke, I think, can be helpful here. Luke's passages, I've got right down that middle column, and you've got the opening in Nazareth in chapter four, and then down to Capernaum, the bold face there in chapter four still. As you recall from a couple weeks ago, I see Luke's recording of Jesus and the first four disciples um, as an additional episode. And so I put it down there as an affirmation of the disciples rather than the original calling of them that you get in, in Mark and Matthew. And then as we start going down the list, the healing the leper, healing the paralytic, calling of Levi, eating with the sinners, question about fasting, questions about the Sabbath, Luke follows right along with Mark, I think without exception through there. Then you hit a section of Luke that's not in Mark. In chapter six and seven of Luke, you have a sermon. It's sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. It's a shorter sermon. There are some similarities to what we get in Matthew. We can come back to that at some other time. Then you've got the episode of the centurion. That's the one that Matthew has up toward the top there, the upper right, chapter eight, verse five and following. I think it's the same centurion. Luke records um, Jesus's raising of the son of the widow of Nain in chapter seven, which I think is unique to Luke. I'm quite sure it is. Then you get John's question from prison. We don't get that in Mark, and we don't get the dinner at the Pharisee's home in Mark. But then as you go into chapter eight of Luke, you pick up largely with what you've got in Mark. Um, you've got a slightly different ordering of the question from Jesus's, mother's, Jesus's mother and brothers, and the teaching in parables. Luke has them in, in this opposite order, but they're pretty close to the same thing. Then you follow with Mark again, the storm at sea, the garrison demoniac crossing the sea, coming back and Jairus' daughter, Jairus meeting Jesus, asking him to raise up his daughter on their way to Jairus' home. A woman with bleeding is in the crowd. And then you get a visit to Nazareth in Mark. Um, Luke does not include that one, but he does have the one earlier in chapter four Potentially, they're talking about the same visit, but potentially it's a second visit to Nazareth that you get in Mark. Um, you also get that in 
um, Matthew. Then you get the sending of the 12, and Luke again follows Mark in this. Both Luke and Mark have a calling of the 12, several episodes, and then a sending of the 12. We saw that's all compressed into a single chapter in Matthew in chapter 10. Then with John's death and the 12 coming back from being sent, you get that in Luke and Mark, same way. Then you get the feeding of the 5,000, same ordering in Luke and Mark. And then you get the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew. And then as we noted last week, from the feeding of the 5,000 through Peter's profession, Matthew falls in line with Mark. And interestingly, Luke drops out. So where Matthew and Mark tell the story in the same way, Luke drops out. My proposal to you is that Luke is the third gospel that gets written and that you have Matthew and Mark before you got Luke. When Luke wrote, he also had Matthew and Mark. I'm inclined to think that Mark got written first and Matthew second. I'm not going to fight that fight too hard. The earlier church fathers, or just I'll say the church fathers, seem to have seen Matthew as the first gospel written and Mark as the second. But I'm not sure how much that had to do with the fact that Matthew simply appears first in every copy that we have, where you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got them in that order. So that was very consistent in the early, in the early manuscripts. Um, I'm, I'm still inclined to think that Mark is the first one written, that it's the quick telling of the story, that it's the adult version, if you will, uh, meaning it's the story of what it was like to be an adult disciple of Jesus, and you're right in and you're flying along. And that Matthew then writes and is using many of the same episodes as you get in Mark, and as we're part of the oral tradition, but he's working with material differently. And because he does, once you've got Matthew alongside Mark, anybody who picks them up and reads them, as we did last week, is going to wonder what's going on. There, there seems to be confusion and even contradiction between the two accounts. I think Luke knows that, recognizes it. So he sets out to do exactly what he says he sets out to do in the beginning of his gospel, and that is, I've looked at the other records, and I would like to give an orderly account meaning, I think, a chronologically ordered account. And so Luke does that, and when he does it, what we find largely is that his count does go along with Mark's, and that, and that Mark apparently was also sort of giving a chronological telling of the story. And so you've got Luke and Mark giving us a, an ordered account that way, from first to last, for the most part. I'm not gonna press it into the detail, but for the most part, that's what you get. And then the other thing that is interesting, I think, in Luke's telling is when Matthew and Mark agree on the chronology, Luke feels no need to report, repeat things for a third time. And so he drops out. So in that section down at the bottom of the handout, you see Luke dropping out where Matthew falls in line with Mark. And Luke says, I don't need to tell you this all again because you've already got it and you've got it in the, in the order that won't confuse you. He gives us things a third time where there is confusion or contradiction. And so Luke is clarifying 
And then the other thing he's doing is he's complementing the narrative, meaning complementing in the sense, not saying they did a really good job, but in the sense of complementing it with additional material. And so Luke will give us additional material like he does there a third of the way down the page in chapters six and seven of Luke, where we get the story of the sermon, the widow of Nain, um, the dinner at Pharisee's house. And that's the kind of thing that Luke gives us, which is additional. I think also then, once you see that pattern in Luke, I'm inclined to think Luke's record of Jesus' interaction with uh, Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John is an addition to what we have in Mark and then also in John's Gospel. And I think also Luke's story about Jesus going to Nazareth at the very beginning of his ministry is an addition that we don't have in Mark or Matthew. And that when we get to that visit to Nazareth later in Mark, that it really is a later, a later visit and a second attempt on Jesus's part to go back home and, um, and minister there as he's traveling around Galilee. And given all of the traveling that you seem to get, uh, it's not unusual that he would make it to Nazareth a second or a third time. So I think that's what's going on with Luke. And when you get to the second half of Luke's gospel, you'll get a lot more of that additional material in Luke. And you'll get some of your favorite stories, like the story of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son and those kinds of things Luke gives us and nobody else does. Um, so you get a much more complete picture in Luke. Um, I, I think that holds together pretty well and it's helpful. Let me just pause. Do you have questions about that much? My, my theory so far on Mark and Matthew and then what Luke is doing and how it can help us think about Mark and Matthew uh, as well. Is it holding together so far? You willing to accept my, my theory? Uh, you should know uh, there are certainly people around who would disagree with me. So just know that you, you should always question people who sit in front of you in situations like this and tell you what to think. Uh, okay. Uh, so continue to work with that as we go and, and see what you think. Um, and, and there are certainly other theories about how we've got these Gospels and what the writers are up to. Were you gonna, no? Oh, okay, you're surprising me. I'm so used to Lauren asking difficult questions that I almost expect it to happen now. Um, so then the next step would be, if I'm right so far, Luke recognizes the reader's gonna have a problem, he wants to give a chronologically ordered account, his account then pretty much confirms that Mark is also giving it to us sort of as it happened. We're back to the question about Matthew. What is, what is Matthew doing? It, it would seem at least that Matthew is the odd man out, that he's doing something different from what Luke and Mark are doing in terms of how he's telling the story. And so the question then becomes, what is Matthew up to and how shall we understand him? Um, you know, some of the most obvious things as we're growing off what Nico said a minute ago is that he does seem to be ordering the material in a certain way. You get four chapters of action in Matthew. You might want to go ahead and get Matthew open in front of you if you don't have it open already. You get the birth, the genealogy, the birth, the appearance of John, 
Jesus' own baptism, his experience in the wilderness in chapter 4, and now he's calling disciples, and we have this kind of introductory, and here comes Jesus at the end of chapter 4 in Matthew. And he's going about in Galilee, teaching and preaching and working miracles, and the multitudes are starting to follow. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, then, you get this sermon. Lots of teaching. You get to chapter 8, and the sermon ends, and he comes down from the mountain. Multitudes follow him, and now we start to get miracles. A leper, a centurion, Peter's mother, mother-in-law, I'm sorry. Um, he crosses the sea. There's a storm at sea. He calms the winds and the waves, verse 26. He gets to the other side. He deals with this Gadarene demoniac. And we're told here that there are two, which is something Matthew often does, is have a second person included in a miracle that isn't necessarily cited in other accounts. Chapter 9, verse 1, he crosses back over. And this is one of the places where we get a very stark difference between Mark and Luke. In their telling, when he comes back from the sea, he encounters Jairus and heals his daughter. Here, we get the story of the paralytic being brought by his friends and Jesus forgiving him. Then the calling of Matthew, the gathering with Matthew's sinful friends, questions about fasting. Um, now we get to the Jairus story, though he's not named Jairus. Um, and it's interesting, the story about Jairus is a little bit shorter. The story about the demoniac uh, is a little bit shorter, less detail from Matthew. Um, and I'll just say, incidentally, that's that, those are some of the reasons why I'm often inclined to think Mark came first. Mark gives us the story. Matthew is almost referring to that story as if you know it. And he gives you the short version. So then we get the uh, Jairus' daughter and the woman in the crowd with the bleeding. Some people have wanted to suggest, well, you know, maybe we've got different, different healings and they sort of look similar, but we've got different healings and, and that's why they're different places. But it's hard to do that. You know, the, the healing, the raising of Jairus' daughter and this woman with bleeding are, are inextricably linked. It's hard to believe that that happened twice in exactly the same way. Um, we go through that in verse 27. Then we have two blind men healed. In verse 32, a dumb man is given speech. And we're at the end of this section. And then, as we go into chapter 10, we have the calling and sending of the disciples and an extended, an extended portion of Jesus' teaching. If you keep going from there, you go back into some episodes in chapter 11 and 12, and then chapter 13 will be another dense teaching passage with probably a half a dozen parables in it. Matthew gives parables and gives several more than Mark does. Some of them are unique to Matthew. And then you go back into some episodes. And if you follow on through Matthew, you get sort of 
five sections of episodes with five sections of teaching interspersed. And so you have that five-fold structure throughout the gospel. Some people think it, it is a reflection of the Torah, of the five books of the Torah. Um, but, but it's pretty clear you do have these discrete sections. And again, quite different from Mark in that regard. With Mark, it's all woven in together. Um, so you've got that structural thing going on where he's grouping teachings and events that may or may not happened, have happened in a group. Okay? Can you live with the thought that the Sermon on the Mount is maybe Max, Max, <laughs> the fifth disciple, at any rate, the fifth gospel. No, that is maybe Matthew's sort of collation of a lot of Jesus' teaching, and it's there in the form of a sermon as Matthew gives it to us, that may or may not have been given in exactly that way. Would you, could you live with that and not be terribly upset? Um, that these episodes that happen in chapters eight and nine all happened, and just like in the sermon, Jesus said it all, and now in the um, uh, in chapter thirteen, when you get to the parables, did he give them all in that way and exactly that together? These are these are almost certainly in both the Sermon on the Mount and the parables things that Jesus said over and over and over. This is what he taught. This is why it's so nice to have Matthew, because you read Mark and you get these one-line phrases from Mark, and Jesus went around teaching. And you go, what did he teach? What did he teach? What did he teach? And you go, oh, thank you for giving us Matthew. This is what he taught. And he did it over and over and over. Uh, you know, some of you have known me for a little while. People like Lauren and others around here, I mean, my word, how many times have some people heard me say the same thing? over and over and over. And it would be, I've often thought it'd be very interesting if you had a group of students who knew me primarily from when I was teaching at RTS in Orlando, and a group of students who knew me primarily from when we were in Charlottesville and we were up there, a group of students who were here, but from different eras here. And, and it would be very interesting because they would all say, Horner says the same things over and over and over, and yet you'd get some very different pictures along the way. And, and so you get that with Jesus. He's going to say some of these things over and over and over, these wonderful images that he's using. Um, now, I think, I'm inclined to think, he did give a sermon very much like what we've got in the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm sure he gave that kind of teaching over and over and over, and Matthew gives it to us the way he does right up front. So we've got this kind of grouping going on. We've got Matthew working with the material. Um, what else do we have in Matthew? Well, I think what we've got in Matthew is that he's presenting the same picture of Jesus of Nazareth as the other three gospel writers, but Matthew is also using that presentation and that argument to frame his gospel and to order how he puts it together. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make the claim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who was to come. He is the Christ. Luke gives it to us chronologically. Mark largely does the same. Matthew says, I'm going to use that argument that Jesus is the Messiah as the ordering principle of how I present this material. So what does he do? He writes a gospel, and, 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 and my audience, he's saying, is primarily Jewish. That's who, I'm, that's who I'm primarily thinking about in writing my gospel. And so what, how does he start his gospel? The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. 
and the genealogy links Jesus into David and Abraham very deliberately. What's next? The birth of Jesus the Messiah. And as he starts to unpack this, what is he constantly doing? Citing the Hebrew scriptures, as the prophet wrote, as the prophet wrote, as the prophet wrote. So he's developing right off the bat an argument about Jesus as being the Messiah. He's putting the argument right up front. And as he develops that argument, one of the things he moves to very deliberately is the authority of Jesus that demonstrates him to be the Messiah. And so when he gives a sermon, it is, it is a kingdom manifesto by the king whose kingdom is coming. And he speaks with authority. And this is what people are struck by at the end of the sermon. In chapter 7 at the end, we're told in verse 28, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Always remember chapter divisions are completely artificial. And if, you've, if you read the Bible a fair amount and want an interesting exercise, read it without chapter divisions. Read to, I mean, do something as arbitrary as just saying, I'm gonna to read to the 10th verse of each chapter, and then the next day I'll start with verse 11 of that same chapter, just to break these patterns that have become embedded in us. Verse one of chapter eight, I think ought to be part of chapter seven. <laughs> In other words, it's kind of the, the crowds are amazed at his authority, amazed at his teaching, and as he comes down off the mountain, they're following him. And then what we start with in is some details about Jesus's activities. As we read through them, it is interesting to see uh, the, um, the authority uh, coming through as a theme. And I'm sorry, oh. I got these notes out. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so as, as we start into this, look at, the, look at the ways that Matthew is developing Christ's authority. Um, we have the leper, and um, after he heals the leper, in verses two to four, he says, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses prescribed for a testimony to them. While the word authority isn't there, part of what Jesus is doing is having this man go show himself to the priests as a demonstration of the fact that Jesus has, in fact, worked this miracle and has the authority to do so. As we go on into the next one, it's the centurion in Capernaum entreats Jesus and says, Sir, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and suffering great pain. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The centurion says, Lord, I am not qualified for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And this is this Roman centurion. Interesting argument, isn't it? I mean, interesting point that Centurion makes. I know how authority works. You have authority. You can just speak the word and it will be done. Peter then, uh, he goes to Peter's home. 
and um, he heals Peter um, it, as we go on down through the miracles his authority is demonstrated in the storm at sea um, that happens down to verse 23 and following verse 26 why are you timid why are you scared verse 27 after Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea and becomes calm his disciples marvel saying what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him, that he has authority over the wind and the sea. He comes over uh, to the other side and uh, deals with a gathering demoniac. In, verse, in chapter nine, verse six, you have the paralytic who's being healed, but before he's healed, Jesus forgives his sin. In verse six, what is the question? Um, do you have the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. In verse 33, um, after the demon is cast out of the dumb man, the crowd is marveling again and saying, nothing like this has ever been seen um, in, in Israel. I think what Matthew is doing is developing a picture of Jesus as the Messiah and specifically in chapters um, 5 through 9 developing the argument that Jesus acts with the authority of the Messiah. He demonstrates that in his teaching in chapters 5 to 7 and then he demonstrates it in the works that he performs in chapters 8 and 9. Now, I think it goes a step significantly further than that because we still haven't answered the question of why would Matthew then change the ordering of the events? Why does he put the episodes in a different order? And I think if you look at these carefully, you'll see that Matthew is working from, if you will, the least to the greatest of the demonstrations of Jesus' authority over sin and demons and death. And so you go through this sequence and the first thing you have is Jesus' authority over sickness. In verse, 12, in verse 2 of chapter 8, you have the, um, the leper healed. In, in verse 5 and following, you have the centurion's servant healed. And in verse 14 of chapter 8, you have Peter's mother-in-law healed. All three are cases of sickness and he demonstrates his authority by healing the sick. This is to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. We then have this little aside, sort of, of someone who wants to follow him and says he will follow, and Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple says to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. We'll come back to that one and sort of ask a question about it. But the next work that he performs is that he goes across the sea. There's a storm. He rebukes the wind and the sea, and it becomes perfectly calm. And so now he demonstrates his authority over nature. So... Sickness demonstrates his authority. Nature demonstrates his authority. He meets the gathering demoniac and he casts out this demon. They, the demons ask him, what business do we have to do with you, son of God? Are you here to torment us? 
He demonstrates his authority over them, casts them out into the swine. They go down and destroy the swine. So we go sickness and then nature and now demons getting into the boat. Jesus goes back across and they bring him a paralytic. Now this again is where Matthew gives us a different order, but he's ordering these episodes on the basis of an argument he's making about the increasing authority of Jesus. So now what have we got? Another sick person? Well, in this case, the point is not his sickness, but his sins. And so Jesus says to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he demonstrates that he does have the authority to forgive sins by healing the man, the boy, of his, para of his, uh, of his paralysis. So we go now to sin, and with sin, I would say, also authority over sinners. He calls Matthew and sits with Matthew and his sinful friends over dinner and shows his authority over sinners, calling Matthew to follow him, and Matthew comes and follows him. You then have a little thing connected to that about fasting and new wine and old wineskins. We can come back and talk about that one if you want. But the next work that is performed is the synagogue official who comes and says, my daughter has died. Inextricably linked to going and raising this daughter from the dead is healing the woman with the suffering and of the hemorrhage for 12 years. But the heart of it, of course, is that he raises this little girl from death and brings her back to life. So I would say you've got an interesting sequence that starts with sickness and then goes to authority over nature and then authority over demons and then authority over sin and sinners and then authority over death itself and that Matthew is deliberately ordering them in that sequence in order to, in order to make his argument about Jesus is the Christ as demonstrated in his authority in all of these ways. Um, what do you think? Anybody want to argue with me a little bit or raise questions or something? Yeah. Go ahead, Fraley. What if he, because I think it makes sense to like have it culminate into like Jesus healing someone um, that has passed away, but then Matthew goes back and talks about healing the blind and healing the people unable to speak. So why wouldn't he like position those, you know, if he's building this big, right. like this big, authoritative hurrah, then why wouldn't he put those before? Good question. Anybody got an answer? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that is a really good question. And I'll go ahead and say, here's my answer to that question. Um, and this also is sort of fueled by reading all the Gospels alongside each other. We will get to two episodes in Mark that are very interesting in this regard. Um, yeah, shoot. I kind of want to save that in Mark, but I also want to answer this question. And I'll go, so I'll go ahead and say, the two episodes that are unique to Mark, and it's almost the only thing that really is, are two healings. Um, one of them is a blind man, and the blind man is the blind man who's healed twice. The first time Jesus heals him, it doesn't work. You know that story? He heals the blind man and he says, can you see? And he says, well, I see people, they kind of are like trees. And so Jesus touches him again and heals him and now he can see. That's a weird one, right? So did Jesus try and not quite get it right this time or what's going on there? Well, 
I think that miracle and another one in Mark's gospel are miracles that are meant to be heuristic. They are meant to teach, particularly the disciples, something that Jesus wants to teach them. And it has to do with their own sight and blindness and with their own progress in being able to see and hear and speak. I think Matthew is doing the same thing here. I, I think these are, um, they are two things. They are illustrations, but I think even more so, they are fulfillments of prophecy. And this takes us back to the same Isaiah 35 passage that I mentioned, I think, last week, where you have that extended portion of Isaiah's prophecy that we don't think about as much from the 20s through chapter 35. And it culminates in chapter 35 of Isaiah where the day of the Lord is seen as a day of redemption, of joyful shouting in Zion, of everlasting joy, of finding gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing, fleeing away. Um, they will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Behold, your God will come with justice and recompense of God will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. That extended portion of Isaiah is, is the portion that Jesus himself pointed to, remember, when John the Baptist sent his question from prison. And Jesus pointed John to this passage and said, let him know that the blind are seeing the deaf are hearing, the dumb are speaking, the lame are walking, and John will know what I'm talking about. I think Matthew knows the same passages. Matthew is all about drawing on the Old Testament and seeing the fulfillment of prophecy as part of the attestation to Jesus being the Messiah. And so I think what we've got here, it's all kind of, it, it, you, you, yeah, you gotta, you gotta know a little bit, don't you? You've got to know those scriptures a little bit, but I think Matthew is saying in these two episodes, um, the blind are seeing, the uh, dumb is speaking, and Isaiah 35, 6 is being fulfilled. He's already cited Isaiah 53 in verse 17 of chapter 8. This was a fulfilled what was, was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our own infirmities and carried away our diseases. Isaiah 35 is doing that same kind of thing, and I think those miracles illustrate that. I'm not sure, and, it, and you've raised a really good question. And it's not the only question that you should raise and push me on. Were you gonna raise that same question? Yeah. I have a follow-up. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I uh, sort of both, I guess. It, it would not have surprised me at all if we had a chapter division between verses 26 and 27. 
um, after the whole story of, of uh, Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead, verse 26, and news spread throughout all the land, period. And then the next chapter, as it were, starts with, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men. But having said that, we don't have chapter divisions at all, is the right way to read it. Um, so I think there is still a, you know, we're, we're moving on in a sense, but I do think these miracles are meant to be seen as fulfillments of Isaiah's prophecy. And, and in that sense, still very much a part of the argument that Jesus is the Messiah, and one way we know that is that he demonstrates the authority of the Messiah as Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Something like that. Um, I'll tell you, for me, one of, the, one of the hard ones is also, why does he go into this thing about foxes and holes and um, uh, letting the dead bury the dead? It, that's not in Mark at all. It is in Luke along with another line of a similar nature, but it comes in Luke very late in Luke's narrative. Um, again, it's the kind of thing I can imagine Jesus saying more than once, but why does Matthew put it in here? And, I, and I'm not sure. Um, that's one question. The other one is the fasting and the new wine in the old wineskins, um, that you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Um, it may be that, that certain, certain parts of a story are, well, certain things are connected to stories in the Gospels. And, and so Matthew is taking an episode and it sort of comes attached to the comment about fasting, so it's in there. That may be part of it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see Matthew as just being wooden in, in this. There's movement and flexibility. Um, but it's interesting. You know, you think about new wine and old wine skins. There is a challenge in that, that Jesus is something new, and, and he is challenging. And, and that whole Sermon on the Mount is kind of New wine. This is this is a whole this is a way to live. And it's and it's new wine. You're not gonna put it in old wineskins. You you have heard it said, do this, that, and the other. I will say to you, let's do this. I I got new wines, we're not putting it in old wineskins. And and that there is that sense of newness with Christ. That the foxes have holes and um and this idea of, I, I, you know, I want to follow you, but I, you know, I need to sort of take care of my parents for a number of years here or whatever it might be. And Jesus says, well, no. Either you're going to follow me or you're not. And he doesn't mince words on it. And I do think there is, there is certainly a question of authority here. You say you want to follow me. Do you? Because it's going to cost you. And, and, and so the question of whether you are ready to follow me, whether you are to say, whether you are to acknowledge my authority in your life is, is a real question. And so it's in there for Matthew. And, and I think it may still fit with the authority theme and, and whether the reader or these people are gonna acknowledge that authority. Um, that comes after the healing, yeah, everybody's excited. I heal people. I want to follow, I want to follow, I want to follow. Do you? 
Do you want to follow? It's, and right off the bat, there's, a, there's that kind of a challenge. So I'm not sure, but the part that I'm pretty sure about, I'm not sure about several of these things that you've raised here. Um, excuse me. Um, but the part that I do think holds together pretty well is that sequence of increased demonstrations of authority and that it does give ordering, an ordering principle to how Matthew presents the episodes. And then, then lets you get a little bit more comfortable with the fact that, you know, he's not writing for a late modern audience. So he doesn't tell us what he's doing. He just gives us this story the way he does. And if we didn't have Mark and Luke, we'd have no idea what's going on in terms of how he's ordering the material. Um, in the end, they all agree, but the big difference is Matthew uses his argument about Jesus as Messiah as the ordering principle. That's kind of his editorial <laughs> um, practice for how he orders the material. He doesn't tell you that he's doing what he's doing, but he's doing it, and I think it's quite effective, and that it does, in fact, hold together. You go from this, at the end of chapter nine, you go into him now giving what? Giving authority to his disciples and sending them out to be able to do some of the same works he's been doing, and you get this entire exhortation, this, this teaching. You've got to go to six different chapters, I think it is, in Luke's gospel to get the same material that Matthew condenses in one chapter that starts with the calling and then goes to the sending of the disciples. But again, it's their authority going out. Um, and then when you get to the, uh, um, not the Beatitudes, the parables, you, uh, you get the, uh, the declaration of the kingdom. And, and we'll go from there later. Uh, it's probably time to stop, I think it is. So we will, um, but, you know, study these things to see whether you think they are so. And I'm glad to hear further questions and thoughts. Um, but I hope this is at least helpful as far as it goes. And thanks as always. Thank you.